here back in the 11FS office in London for episode 122 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Ethereum edging closer to ETH 2.0, backed Bitcoin futures hit an all-time high, and the UN accuses North Korea of money laundering using a blockchain company, obviously. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Rich Crook, the uh, director of Lab577. Uh, How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing well, Simon. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back on the show. And of course, returning, um, Vinay Gupta, CEO of Materium. How are you doing, Vinay? Uh, not bad at all. Yeah. Um, we'll get into what you guys do towards the end of the show. But uh, just before we get on the, with the news, 11FS are taking part in the 2020 British Bank Awards. And... Well, we need your help to win, obviously. Um, we can't do it alone. We need we need that help. So we took home the 2019 Consultancy of the Year early in the year. And you know what? It was a great little Christmas present, New Year's present for us. And we want to win it the second year running. You know, we have to. Um, but we're also uh, really excited to be taking part in the new category, Pioneer of the Year. I don't know what it means, but it's exciting nonetheless. So if you love the work that we do, please, please, please head over to bit dot ly forward slash 11fs2020 and nominate 11fs for the consultancy of the year that's bit.ly forward slash 11fs2020 it would mean the world to us thank you all right on with the news First story this week comes from Cointelegraph.com. Uh, the Ethereum Istanbul hard fork release date confirmed by core developer. That is a word salad, isn't it? Um, so d December the 4th uh, is expected to be the date for the network's forthcoming Istanbul hard fork. Um, step back for me here a second, um, Vinay, and talk about what's a hard fork? Why is Ethereum having a hard fork to upgrade? So the, the big story of blockchains is immutability, right? You have this permanent ledger of how everything has been. The software doesn't really change because, you know, everybody has to play by the same rules. And in theory, apart from minor bug fixes, nothing gets touched. Um, you typically have many implementations of the protocol by different authors all forming the same consensus. And so you could fix bugs in one of those uh, kind of sets of code without it affecting the protocol as a whole. The network remains stable. So a hard fork is essentially you turn it off, everybody upgrades their software, then you turn it on again. Ah. So it's a coordinated, it's not exactly a shutdown of the network, but it's essentially equivalent to a coordinated shutdown of the network. Everybody upgrades their software simultaneously, then you turn it back on again. So much like Fortnite. <laughs> done, ten, done 10 seasons. It's now ready for chapter two. Going to shut down the network for two days of a video hopefully it's going to be a live event yeah and then we boot it back up again and we're all good and i yeah. think it's fair to say it's about as anticipated as fortnite season two was well chapter two and i think actually uh, if it yeah, has a, a big live bad. event and we get lots of videos and we got lots of people watching it, it should be good fun yeah yeah I, I wouldn't guarantee there'll be much razzmatazz because at the end of the day if it goes wrong right it's going to be 36 hours of frantic patching and fixing right? i'm buying my popcorn already yeah yeah I mean, these things are fraught right because the other thing is that it's not like they're bringing the network down although concept you know, one version of Ethereum is being replaced by another. 
practically speaking, the network shouldn't actually hiccup in the process. Because really the software running at the full nodes is what's been getting upgraded, but the, the, the data archive itself is essentially the same thing. And it should all flip over without there being an interruption in service, which is the clever part, yeah. right? Taking a network down and putting another one up in its place without the actual transactions stopping, yeah, uh, that's quite clever. Uh, but it's also quite hard. Um, you know, So it's going to be um, midnight oil and frayed fingernails uh, through that whole process, I imagine. Which is why it's been anticipated for quite some time, this thing coming. I think the anticipation is, is also built on the on the promise of ETH 2.0. Um, the, the key thing to recognize is when ETH was built to start with, it didn't have in mind what we're now trying to use it for. And as we've gone through both the store and exchange of values and then onto the ICO bubble, what we've discovered is the financial requirements uh, mm-hmm. to run your network uh, to and meet the financial requirements require coming down from the regulators it isn't the same as ETH uh, 1.0. So 2.0 is an attempt to try and get closer uh, to being able to fulfill those financial requirements that are put upon each of the financial institutions uh, to run things. So what we're looking at here is a significant upgrade to get closer. And what we see this as is tech convergence. Uh, This is a multi-decade play. It doesn't matter if you're in the quarter camp, the hyperledger camp, or in the Ethereum camp. They are moving slowly but surely closer and closer to being the same thing. But what I think is interesting about Ethereum, though, is the original thesis was quite different. It was to build the world computer and it was to build unstoppable code. And that's still sort of very much on the homepage is build unstoppable applications. And so this permissionless decentralized network uh, was what would allow you to do that. And everybody said Ethereum couldn't be delivered. And of course, you you had a hand in making sure that did in fact happen. Mm. Um, but now there are some scalability issues. There were some privacy issues. There are a whole bunch of things that that 1.0 didn't do. And 2.0 is trying to fix some of those. Yes. I mean, <clears throat> to me, the, the 1.0, 2.0 thing is kind of, um, it's a way of explaining the size of the changes to people. Mm. But really, you know, the uh, this is such a subtle thing. So the roadmap was always twenty years worth of work, right? Mm-hmm. From from beginning to end. From you know, we have this thing that does you know twenty transactions a second and has a single programming language on a rickety virtual machine, mm-hmm. through to a world computer that would be able to efficiently join all of the world's processing power and all the world's storage power into a single programmable surface that would be basically supercomputing on demand. Mm -hmm. That was always going to be two decades worth of work. So, you know, there are several large checkpoints on that, right? Proof of work turning into proof of stake, meaning you can get rid of all that expensive mining hardware. Um, Then once you've got proof of uh, stake established, you can then do sharding, Mm -hmm. which gives you the ability to begin the acceleration process. Um, but I wouldn't say that the actual long-term roadmap has really changed at all. It's just, you know, you bring developers together in kind of waves, and this is, you know, the 2.0 wave, and then that will go for six months a year, and then people start talking about, okay, now it's time to get sharding done, and then that will be another push. Uh, it's very incremental. Jeremy Miller at Consensus always described it as being similar to Java 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. If you if you look at those, it wasn't until 3.0 and even 4.0 that enterprise was really using this stuff at scale. And actually, a lot of the early early Java implementations were exciting and brilliant, but really hard to use for a lot of people and not practical and not scalable. And we've seen that evolve over the decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, we used to play this game of what year is it in the blockchain? Mm-hmm. Right. And for a long time, I always said it's 1991, right? We haven't got a version of the internet which supports joining things together. Like, we haven't invented the blockchain equivalent of the hyperlink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
having had five years to sit and look at things and look at the progress, I would say actually we're still in the 1970s, mm-hmm. right? I think we are actually still at the homebrew computer club stage because in that five years, most of what we've done is just going back and filling in all the holes that were left from the mad scramble to get the thing done in the first place. <laughs> like we haven't actually made very much technical progress other than backfilling the existing system to make it genuinely robust. Which makes it interesting then that um, we've got the the next story, which is kind of linked. So the next story actually comes from The Block, and this is about backed monthly Bitcoin futures hitting an all-time high at $15 million. And to the point you were just making, whilst we're still very early in the technology cycle, uh, there are there's, there's serious money riding in some of this technology. And, and Rick, I'm looking at you here because uh, there's definitely things that you can do with bits and pieces of it now that, that do seem like they are ready for prime time versus um, maybe a, a permissionless decentralized network that can do some things but not all the things you might need to do day to day. So we're watching um, the crypto space. Uh, it continues to accelerate, um, and we know that it's moving at that kind of breakneck speed. It did currencies, and it's been going through the process of uh, free uh, free banking uh, with things like the stable coins being issued out. We've then moved into derivatives. We've now got futures, uh, and then onwards into future contracts. We now want to, to options. This is just a, a normal emerging market doing what it says. And this is fintech, Simon. This is what we would call that. Yeah. Um, and from my perspective, we're watching the convergence of the crypto domain into the incumbent financial domain, and the two are converging, yeah. where, as we always use the classic animal farm, which is the creatures looked from man to pig and pig to man and did not see the difference. Yeah. This is what's coming. Indeed. And it's interesting that um, Bitcoin, the asset class, seems to be further ahead than, quote unquote, blockchain, the technology used deeply in financial services. I think that's a reasonable way of looking at this. There are two speeds to this. Uh, As I said, the tech convergence is a multi-decade play. Um, We look back at that, the story before where we were talking about kind of the uh, um, blockchains that are built upon uh, a shared everything architecture that we're trying to use trying to build trust, the Ethereums and the Bitcoins, the Ripples. At the other end, you've you've got things like Corda, which is a shared nothing architecture, and the two are converging from a tech. That will take time. The financial uh, layer is moving at a phenomenal speed. It looks and smells like an emerging market. It is emerging market. Yeah. I mean, at this pace, the dollar will have collapsed before these things have actually fully merged. <laughs> Which I'm guessing you don't think is an unlikely event at some point. And Ray Dalio apparently doesn't. So um, it, it's interesting, though, that uh, you know, this is way smaller than the CME, but it's still, you know, it's, it's a marked increase. When when um, when Bact first launched this, their volumes w- were tiny. Um, this is up nearly 30x. So if they can keep anything near that pace, it could become significant. Well, I mean, I mean, I think what you're saying is exactly right about the implementation of all the standard machinery for finance. The the tricky thing in the blockchain world is the culture, right? That you have these two directions of travel, which is real finance people making their way in and blockchain people slowly acquiring some of the skills of real finance and, as you say, meeting somewhere in the middle. The thing which is, I think, a little weird about all this is um, treating Bitcoin as an asset class um, rather than it being fully integrated into the landscape of currencies. Right? Like I would have expected it to be much more natural for all this stuff to get basically just pulled directly into the FX universe. And it's weird that it's gotten kind of hived off into its own little bubble as, oh, this is a crypto asset, rather than just being treated as another thing you do FX with. So if we look at um, some of the work we see in the fintech space, certainly in London and other places, we are issuing brightly colored debit cards, but that's effectively lipstick on a pig. Mm-hmm. 
when you look at what's going on here, you're talking about the creation and issuance of capital. So you're playing with the capital markets. Now, the financial system actually uh, works at the start from capital markets, the mm. creation of capital, and then works down through uh, the corporate banking, commercial banking before it finally arrives in the retail. Said like a true interest. investment banker. Well, of course. <laughs> and so what we are starting to see uh, is that emerging market appearing, but instead of going through a process of where well, you can create private currencies, okay, we've done that. Uh, now we can start talking about issuing capital, but well, we did that with the ICOs. Now they're starting to say, well, actually, if we've now got an asset base in digital assets, we can start creating instruments on top of that. We're into derivatives and off we go. So there is an emerging market there, uh, which will continue to grow and continue to thrive. And what is interesting about this emerging market is it's not based around one jurisdiction. It's not the Mexico or the Russia emerging market, as we've seen those movies before. This is a properly global or um, multi-jurisdictional, where before the global banks would have been, the global investment banks would have been half a dozen or a dozen of them working across those jurisdictions. You're now starting to see an emerging market that is cross-jurisdictional playing in that global capital markets. This is fintech. And I think the, uh, the, I'd need a Sparta meme somewhere, and uh, this is Sparta. But it, it's interesting. We, we've seen challenger banks. We've seen challenger banks in SME banking. We've seen them now start to come into private banking a little bit, and we're seeing them in corporate banking, like the, the low-level cash management. There's a journey there that gets to, you know, we, we saw maybe 10, 15 years ago the emergence of players that were, were vertic tightly vertically integrated, like an XTX markets or a, or a jump trading. So is what you're saying then that this is the next generation of that, that there are new players emerging there? Or is it you're saying it's a level down? It's not the people who package and sell this stuff. It's it's a level down and it's actually the creation of the asset class itself. We got a, a pattern that, that most of us have grown up with where we've ex experienced what we would call the universal bank, where uh, a bank would attempt to try and achieve all services to all people, all markets. And that has given us or given rise to an entire generation of, of investment bankers and, and, and the people working in these banks who think of everything has to go through the bank. Actually, if you go back more than 20, 30 years, you had a class of banker, a merchant banker, if you use the UK expression, that didn't have the infrastructure, the technology and the balance sheet that, would, uh, that they were expecting in the 90s and 2000s. And they would bring a deal, originate a deal, bring a number of uh, investors together and do a private placement. That may then connect them into a distribution network. And merchant bankers used to fall into either they had a distribution network to place a deal into or they were originating it. And what we're seeing is a reemergence of that type of model. Mm -hmm. So the kind of clients that we're starting to work with are uh, merchant bankers who are doing private placements but do not want to be doing that inside a large investment bank or, or, or so on and so forth. Um, we're starting to see the emergence or move of incumbent uh, secondary trading venues, uh, you can see people like SDX, mm -hmm. um, you can people like AX are out there uh, starting to recognize that the idea that you're going to have to issue onto a public listed exchange is old. And actually what we now need are digital exchanges with digital investment banks. And it's the emergence of those digital investment banks that are starting to appear. Exciting.
Alrighty, um, I've got to move us to a quick shill. Um, this episode is brought to you by Corda Blockchain, blockchain for every business in every industry. Um, and of course, uh, developed by R3, Corda is known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability, and lots of other ability TTTs. Um, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type, size, and any industry. Uh, with Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is available now at r3.com. Uh, head on over to check it out and uh, shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, next story, um, this feels kind of in your wheelhouse, Vinny. Um, this comes from the next web. Uh, apparently, the UN are accusing North Korea of laundering money through a blockchain firm. Uh, did this strike you as a giant surprise? Um, well, I mean, somebody found a real use case. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've always wanted states to adopt the blockchain technology and Bitcoin in particular. Mm -hmm. It had to be somebody that it's North Korea is unfortunate. Um, but I mean, you know, if you build a deregulated, you know, a, you know, wildcat financial system, this is the kind of stuff that happens. There's a risk. Um, so according to a quarterly report from the UN committee, North Korea set up a shipping and logistics firm run on a blockchain platform earlier this year to evade international sanctions. The UN committee believes that the digital currency North Korea stole last year was converted into cash and put through at least 5,000 transactions in countries all over the world, making it a little bit harder to trace. Uh, how much money North Korea has laundered through this Hong Kong-based firm remains unclear. Uh, they put a figure on this of, of $2 billion. Um, That's like uh, a rounding error. Uh, well, when we then reflect on this, which is, you know, the reason we're talking about this is because they used a technology to do this. Um, but in actual fact, uh, we take ourselves back to the Dansk Bank, uh, where they had a branch. A branch uh, to, in Estonia that was... Yep, that put 200 billion euros through it, mostly to evade UN sanctions. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, already and still an ongoing uh, debate and uh, regulation, uh, regulatory review. If you want to launder money buy a bank mm. is actually the lesson well, there's advice you could use you know but, but, something to take home from this podcast <laughs> it, 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 you know the amounts that people are laundering using uh, blockchain is tiny compared to the amount that they get through the main system and the incumbent system uh, and each time we see a money laundering or, or counterterrorism uh, issue it's undoubtedly inside the system, not outside the system. Um, we can come on this a bit more. But. Um, the, the fascinating thing to me is that somebody in the North Korean machinery was savvy enough to set it up, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's really interesting. Because you sort of typically think of nation-state cyber capability as being about hacking other people's computers and knocking things over. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you would build some, you know, large, elaborate, you know, blockchain-based money laundering thing, mm -hmm. like interesting use of sovereign capability. I feel they were long engineers and short bankers. Yeah. yeah. You're like, what, how should we do this? We should build a blockchain. Yeah, let's do it with blockchain. Or we could buy a bank. You, well, you, <laughs> can, you can imagine the meetings, can't you? Can, you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what's interesting to me about this, though, is like you've got a choice of A, buying a bank, in which case it's near impossible to trace, or B, putting it on this immutable record that millions of people have <laughs> copies of and law enforcement has forever to investigate. Like, it's interesting to me the difference in, the, like, the fact that the UN knows this happened is wildly different to their UN's own figures about uh, money laundering globally that says uh, they estimated, I think, in, 
in sort of 2014 that two trillion is laundered every year through the global financial system. Of that, we detect about two percent. Of that, we go ahead and successfully prosecute two percent of the two percent. Wow. Uh, so it, just to give you a scale of the problem, uh, whereas actually, you know, it's kind of uh, there is an issue here. The, I, I think that the interesting difference, though, is with the financial system, there are controls that the global financial system has in place to shut down a bank or to work with another country and pressure them and create the sanctions and to to prevent money from moving over the long term once they've figured it out with Bitcoin. You know, it's your keys. It's your it's your Bitcoin. Um there's that, I think that is a, is a scary, scary thought for some people. Yes. I mean, the so with all of this stuff, right, the, the core question is, is the crypto world part of the real world or is the crypto world an alternative to the real world? So remember John Perry Barrow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, which must have been written in, what, 94 or something like that? So, you know, Barlow, Tim May, the early cyberpunks, they're all very much, uh, cypherpunks rather, mm -hmm. they're all very much of the opinion that the internet is a separate territory, mm -hmm. it has different rules, it has its own constitutionality. And in the early days, you know, you looked at Bitcoin and it was just like Bitcoin is the central bank of the internet. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. When we started Materium, the, the idea was that we were going to be a supreme court of the internet to ride beside the central bank. Mm -hmm very reasonable, right? And, you know, 58 Arbitration Act makes it possible to build these kind of global structures on contract law. Mm. It's not it's not difficult to do. But what's happened over the last 10 years is more and more and more and more of this kind of, you know, the fintech veneer, like, you know, pay, pay no attention to where this thing came from. Just look at what it does. We can definitely domesticate that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this whole thing is like the attempt to domesticate wolves. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that was, I mean, we ended up with puppies. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. Well, Dog I mean, memes. It, it looks very nice, right? <laughs> but the thing about the domesticated wolf is, what happens if the door hiccups, right? Like, nobody looks at America right now and says, look, that's fine, we don't need to worry about that, right? <laughs> nobody has that impression. Um, you know, California has burned to the ground, right? And, you know, when you see, you know, the world's, you know, single largest software hub, you know, on fire because they've been unable to provision correctly for the power company to make sure that its cables don't set more fires. You know, rolling blackouts and the hills are completely black and they're covered in refugees. You know, the governance issues that surround Silicon Valley are so severe that it's resulting in multiple tiers of large-scale systemic infrastructure disruption. That's a governance crisis that makes anything that you've seen on the blockchain look like a rounding error. That's a pretty fair point. But I think on that, we'll, we'll come back to the, the USA, the world gone, world's gone mad and the system is broken, That's which is our, our, our last story. I want to just kind of um, bring us briefly back to this thread on uh, the link story here from sort of Coindesk, which is uh, an FBI director saying crypto is still a significant issue for law enforcement. So director Chris Ray says cryptocurrency is a significant issue that's likely to become bigger and bigger problem for the law enforcement agency. He said, we're looking at it from an investigative perspective, including tools we have to follow the money, even in this new world that we're living in. Whether it's cryptocurrency, uh, whether it's the default on, uh, encryption on devices and messaging platforms, we're moving uh, as a country in a world in a direction where if we don't get our act together, money, people, communication, evidence, facts, and all the bread and butter for us to do our work will essentially be walled off from the men and women we represent. This... What what did you think when you saw this? Because to me, as like I, I, I consider myself a, somewhat of a privacy advocate, I generally think privacy rolling your own sort of opsec is pretty hard and too hard for most people. But you know, GDPR existed for a reason. It may have been largely 
inept uh, as a legislation, but it it, was, it had good intentions. Uh, there's clearly people feel like they should have privacy in, in, in the general population. Otherwise, these things would not come to fruition. This feels like we've seen a lot from different governments that are really worried about the citizens having good OPSEC. There's a, there's a feeling here whether you look at the FBI, whenever they put a story out that says we've got issues with cryptocurrency, that actually they probably quite like cryptocurrency because it's easy to track. Uh, and there's always this uh, uh, attempts by the, the agencies to, to ensure that uh, how well they can track it is, is not well known. But I think leaving that aside, uh, what's really interesting for me on this one is if you look over the last 40 years of building KYC, AML, CFT into the, the incumbent system, um, it's all wrapped around the incumbent system. And that's been working quite well. We've just talked about some of the money laundering that hasn't made it well, but actually, to a great less extent, the ability to be able to enforce United Nations sanctions to stop uh, terrorism funding um, and the anti-money laundering has worked. It certainly gained huge teeth when the Americans stood up in after 9-11 mm -hmm. and got involved in this. And actually, it's working. It's working to such a level that when you then create a new system that can uh, transfer value around and outside it, you're going to get all the agencies who have been currently focusing on the incumbent system go, actually, that's a problem for us. Yeah, they can see a bigger problem. They, can see, they can see a bigger problem. Things, which is why when you look at um, evolving and creating a distributed ledger or blockchain network, having anonymous actors on it, uh, doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin, Ripple, or Ethereum, is a problem that we have to resolve. Uh, you cannot be anonymous in a financial system. Mm -hmm. Well, and wait, that, wait, hang on, hang on. That's obviously nonsense. You know that, I know that, right? The financial system has always permitted anonymous actors, right? You walk into some place with, a, you know, two kilograms of gold 500 years ago, nobody twitches. So right? that, the financial system ran for millennia on untrackable currency and, and, without any strong form of identity. And continued to until, right. as I say, the Americans stood, stepped up right. in 9-11 and, and rolled through and but, said, but actually, we're not going to we, finish that. But the Americans never chased the money in 9-11. All of the financial lines went straight back into Saudi Arabia. Did you see anybody's head getting put on a pole? Only journalists, right? The, the bottom line is that the the structural corruption that permits two trillion a year of money laundering is not there because money laundering is a threat to the system. Money laundering is required for the system to function, right? You know, the, the golden age of Wall Street leverage buyouts was all funded by cocaine money that was being laundered through Wall Street by lending the money at very low rates to people that knew the leverage to do buyouts. It's always been this way. These systems are filthy. If the blockchain represents a threat to the financial system, it's right, exactly. It's not the ability to move money silently that makes the blockchain dangerous to Wall Street. It's the ability to find out who did what with the money that makes mm -hmm. it dangerous. Right. Which is why we go back to the point that I was making, which the, the FBI, when they put out, you know, this is a problem, probably haven't recognized that actually it's uh, actually part of the solution. Mm -hmm. well, so actually, it, if you look at, you know, either, No, either, this, is, this is so much more squirrely, right? Because mm -hmm. we're not discussing the human rights aspect of this at all, right? The way that computers work is they tend to push things to extremes, right? Total transparency or total hardcore cryptographic anonymity. The middle ground of we could go and dig the records out for you if you really wanted us to, but it's a manual process and it'll take us six hours so we can't do it for everybody simultaneously. That kind of middle ground goes away, right? So we have to make a decision about whether individuals have financial privacy or not. 
if they have financial privacy, then we have to accept that there will be anonymous actors on the network that we can't trace, right? Because it turns out that keeping your identity secure from hostile regimes is a fundamental human right. And if you have only a single blockchain which is being used for the world's transactions, they're not balkanized into national things, then I'm not going to trust the North Korean government or the Saudi government with the ability to access my identity. So wait, wait, wait. Let's just separate the difference between privacy and, uh, and anonymous. So mm. we rolled out the web and uh, everyone came, joined the web as anonymous. We then spent the last 20 years trying to remove the anonymity and get mm. people. So when you go onto your website right now, there's a little padlock. tells yeah. you you've got a secure but, link, but, which means your privacy with this transaction. But on top of that, you now actually can say, I am talking to Amazon, I am talking to Barclays, and so on and so forth. And they've so got nothing are, against... Those, those are two very different actions in the network. Sure. Now, but, when we look but at... the identification we, of individuals... At, on the the identification on the of individuals on the internet, not of companies, but of individuals, was never done for the individual's benefit. You're identified on the internet because it makes you easier to market to and because it makes you easier to regulate, but the regulations are no, largely not there for your protection. So we're talking about the identification of the merchants. So ignore the, the individuals at this point. If you look at the banks and the bankers, they have got used to and are very used to a level of health and hygiene that says, I know who the other person is on the other side. In fact, I want to know who this. So the idea that we right, can have a financial system wait, where people are anonymous, wait, wait, But we've got to square that with, you know, $2 trillion of money laundering. Right? If this is true that we have this kind of you know city on the hill transparency and we have to know our customers and all the rest of that, where is this two trillion going? Oh no, so, so right? if you what look I'm at pointing the... out is that you know the bankers are completely dependent on rat holes. That two trillion of laundered money is where most of the liquidity comes from for doing anything that looks remotely innovative or sketchy or is happening in a third world country. Yeah, so so separate again the ninety nine percent of the financial industry who are uh, required and make sure they know who is on the other side of the transaction, and that is about making sure they're anonymous. The 1% that have been poorly regulated and are able to be inside the system for starters, they should have been fit and proper by the regulator. And then secondly, while they were acting inside that system, where well, was the regulator, which is where no, the no, dance bank the, actually was shown that it was the regulator who was at fault, not the bank. But no, the, this is the crux of it, right? You're, you're making the case that the financial system could still function if it was entirely cleaned up. That's not true at all. No, what I'm saying if is, you is squeeze it... all of the criminal money out of the financial system, firstly, you're going to wind up with rat holes that you could lead a donkey through. You'll wind up with an enormous black financial system parallel to the white you'll financial system. You'll end up with a parallel system. Right. But isn't that a worry here, is that this is that parallel system? And, and isn't it a, a convenient thing to be able to do, to be able to have this this scaremonger sort of story or this 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 uh, sort of scary clown um, kind of nightmare vision of the future that, that the FBI can use and say, there's this parallel financial system coming up. We have no control over it whatsoever. Um, we need to prevent this thing from happening. But it's interesting that the FBI director is saying this. I want to drill into these comments more and more because uh, as I look at it, I think uh, you know, a number of, of folks have told me that there are rumors that when um, the US government first saw Bitcoin, the first thing they did, tried to do was realize this and try to kill it, and then very quickly realized that they couldn't kill it and that they had to adopt it and co-opt it. So that it puts us in an interesting place. Um, and I think for the the ongoing debate of 
you know, where are we at with anti-money laundering and, and will transparency help with that? I don't know that that's their primary motivation. I think when you work in law enforcement, you see some genuinely horrific things on a day-to-day basis. And therefore, what you see is, ah, there's things in my way. And this is why Facebook ended up coming under so much pressure because they have privacy-preserving cryptography that, um, you know, if this were to happen uh, in, in a paper trail, a court could issue a subpoena so that somebody could go turn that over and show those papers and figure out, wow, you did something horrific like human trafficking, uh, some sort of uh, you know, kind of modern slavery, like horrific, horrific things, then we, c- we can do something about that. And those things are happening, and those things are happening in, in this uh, technology, and there's nothing they can do about it. But I think it's a question of scale here, right? So if you look at the scale of the Mexican drug cartels, they're truly gigantic businesses, right? I mean, they're enormous. And we are supposed to believe that with all the might of, you know, the FBI and the NSA and the CIA and all the rest of this, they haven't been able to figure out what is going on and just routinely, you know, take these structures down one at a time and effectively interdict cartel operations, right? The the thing that I'm going to point to here is that there is a lack of will to go after the largest scale criminal enterprises, right? Which, have you seen the Netflix special, The Laundromat? No, I haven't watched that yet. Um, So that's definitely worth looking into. They basically explain how money laundering effectively works through uh it's very noddy they make some mistakes in how they do it but they they, they kind of they, they they talk through really it's about having company complex legal structures and complex company structures that you wash through through different countries and different accounts and it becomes almost impossible to follow the paper trail with a technology where everybody can see every transaction forever we can follow the money but we don't know whose money it was right and to and, be fair you know back in 2016 just before crypto kitties broke cover about half to two-thirds of transactions of Ethereum were those kind of laundromats mm. shunting money through. Yeah. If we just look at that, that FBI director's uh, comments uh, and we just cast back to when we see a wave of new technology coming through, it has a huge social impact. Uh, and what he's really getting at is we watched radio and television come through in the late 20s and early uh, 1930s and that caused a tremendous wave uh, and a significant um, political change throughout um, the 1930s the rise of fascism in Europe is a good example um, we've just watched the internet of information being rolled out the web uh, and that being rolled out as Facebook and Twitter which has had a huge impact on our uh, social and politics uh, as we as we're watching certainly in the UK and we watched over in the US uh, we've watched state actors get involved uh, and, and start Kicking, uh, kicking up a fuss. What he's signaling, and I would probably agree with what he's saying here, is actually if you broadly take it up and away from the kind of conversation we were just having, as we roll out an internet of value, this is going to have a big social mm-hmm. and political impact where when you were talking about information, you can affect people's thoughts. Mm. But as soon as it's talking about money, it's going to be a lot lot more impactful. Much more Almost heavy. like but, we need a Supreme Court for the internet. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't that be days. an idea? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the, the thing is that you can't take it out of context, right? The FBI director is saying these things, but he's part of a country which has lost 1,500 kids in its concentration camp system where they're just dumping illegal immigrants and holding them, right? Well, there's that. It's, it's <laughs> not, you, you can't take this out of context, right? America is bankrupt. It's, you know, embroiled in a bunch of wars that it's slowly pulling itself out of. Nobody trusts the federal government, either left or right. And the FBI FBI director says we want the ability to access all of your financial transactions and read your email and read all your messages. If you don't trust these people completely, you should not give them absolute power. 
Speaking of which, um, from LinkedIn, Ray Dalio, the uh, I guess you could call him one of the godfathers of Wall Street. Um, you know, Ray Dalio, if you're not familiar, you know, is one of uh, what was it uh, Broadridge Capital? I think it is his hedge fund, the first hedge fund, um, and uh, kind of consistently uh, author of the book Principles, like phenomenally uh, kind of well-respected man on Wall Street. It's like uh, a nerdier Warren Buffett. Yeah, nerdy or Warren Buffett is pretty much the perfect way to do it. And uh, like, if you want to understand financial markets, one of the first um, suggestions is is to read Principles by him. And, and then he has some follow-up books as well. He has a way of breaking it down that's really, um, really excellent. So when this guy says the world has gone mad and the system is broken, um, that's not um, any old alarmist. That is somebody who is deep in the the core of financial services uh, for the past sort of forty years and, and a core part of it. Um, and whilst he didn't mention Bitcoin or crypto specifically, uh, he put he did put out an incredible piece about uh, why he thinks the financial system's broken, which I think is goes to a lot of why Bitcoin was formed in the first place, and it goes to a lot of the changes we're seeing both around privacy and the whole conversation there around social media and quote-unquote fake news and truth, and then internet value and, and everything that comes with that, which impacts everything uh, across the piece. The, the genie is out of the bottle and the internet is creating social upheaval. It's it's uh, the printing press all over again, and we're seeing it now. Um, so he discusses, large government deficits exist and will almost certainly increase substantially, which will require huge amounts more debt uh, to be sold by governments not as if they're not already indebted. Now, where will the money come from to absorb these deficits? Of course, it will come from the central banks. Many of those who have obligations to deliver money to pay these pensions of uh, of, of many of the kind of uh, many of these countries who are issuing these debts have obligations to pay money to the pensioners uh, are unlikely to have enough money to meet their obligations creating huge social pressures. Uh, this is mainly due to pension obligations typically being much higher than the market returns that are built into the pricing of those products. We're screwed. Yep. <laughs> what do you think when you saw this, Rick? You've uh, been around with the world cap markets for a little bit. Ray Dalio is fairly well known to you. Well, took a, uh, a bath in equities in the 90s. Um, we watched that go up to the dot-com. The world took a bath in debt through the 2008. For most people um, listening to this, you know they've been part of one or maybe both of those. Um, but to be fair, it depends on what cycle or what wave you want to, to be part of. Um, I imagine these types of blogs were written in the early 70s when OPEC first emerged and crashed uh, the, the, the world economy. Um, it very much depends on what you want to hear and, and how you want to hear it. So you look at the emergence of uh, uh, China and India as powerhouses. We're watching, if you look at the ICO bubble, take this back to blockchain, uh, an emergence of a investor class out in Southeast Asia that we didn't have 20 years ago. Money is being invested back into the Western world um, from Asia. Largely illegally. I would say largely legally. It doesn't matter if it's uh, the, the investors are coming back into and investing in uh, innovation that's going on in London or New York, mm. but the money's going, which is the other way around. So we right. used to do depository receipts. If an Indian company wanted to raise capital and we would list them in London to gain investors from London, mm -hmm. or we would gain investors from New York, and we would then be putting the capital into India to build out their infrastructure, it's now turning around. You've just watched China going through its industrial revolution. Uh, we're now watching huge amounts of money being generated, which needs to be reinvested back into uh, in, into assets on this side. So 
we're watching a tumultuous time. I'll give you that. But if you look at it from the sort of waves of history, uh, see, what is see, this? This is somebody who's seen those waves of history and he's saying something different and he's, he's kind of zoomed out from it. He says, money is free for those who are credit worthy because the investors who are giving it to them are willing to get back less than they give mm. for those that are credit worthy. However, at the same time, large government deficits exist. At the same time, there's the uh, the healthcare issue. At the same time, um, it's essentially unavailable to those that don't have money and don't have credit worthiness, which is actually what contributes to rising wealth, opportunity, and that's what's created the political gap. Yep. So the the economic system of printing money is creating populism, I mean, is what he's drawing a conclusion he's from. He's pointing to Bretton Woods here, right? Yeah. So, and and trickle-down economics being broken uh, is what he's saying. And uh, the set of circumstances, so he finishes with, is being unsustainable and can no longer be pushed as it's been pushed since 2008. Effectively, we kicked the can down the road. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. said, um, that's why I believe the world is approaching a big paradigm shift. So he's saying this isn't 2008, this is not um, 2000, this is not the early 90s, this is something different. I mean, I, I, reading between the lines, right? I think what he's saying is that the entire paradigm where we go from the gold standard to governments just print money when they need it mm -hmm. has turned out to be unstable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's all that dramatic a thing to say. Like, you know, the dollar's lost, what, 97% of its value since we went off the gold standard. Um, the government debts are truly titanic. What is that, $100,000 per American taxpayer in government debt? Mm -hmm. I think it's more than that. Um, but there's certainly no way that you can run a world in a situation where you just wind up with pathological incentives for each government to print money and pass the debt to the guys that will be elected after them. Mm -hmm. The incentives are completely misaligned. And you either need to get into a position where the government's are strictly limited in their ability to create money. Um, or you need to start thinking, well, look, you know, since we built the financial system, we've digitized pretty much the entire planet. Maybe we need to start thinking about using much, much, much more sophisticated models of how the economy works so that we move away from the idea that you simply turn everything into greenbacks and then move around greenbacks. Because the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Now, let's see if I can figure out how to put this into words. So think what happened with quality control, where manufacturing went from being you know, a crappy system where everything was expensive and broken and anything like a steam engine or a car was hand-maintained by a mechanic, and it was a full-time job just to maintain one machine, into a system where you know industrial manufacturing is essentially perfect and you can make a phone for 100 bucks, right? Finance hasn't gone through that transformation. Right? We've still got a bunch of messy, analog, fly-by-the-seat-your-pants processes mm -hmm. where a bunch of guys sit around a table and basically say, I don't know, what do you reckon? 2.1%? Sure, let's do that. It's right. it's moved from analog to digitized, but not digital. We've taken that right. analog paper process and we've used some computers to make that analog process go faster. Exactly. It's not truly digital. And I think that's you know been one of our key messages at 11FS for quite some time. And when you say, Rick, that this is fintech, I think you're saying a similar thing, is that it's we, gone down. We went so. from paper to electronic in the 90s. We're now moving from electronic to digital. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, th I think that this notion is that we've got multiple converging crises, which tell us that the economy isn't working, mm -hmm. right? You've got a whole bunch of people starving. You've got a whole bunch of people that can't get health care. You've got a whole bunch of first world pensioners that are completely hosed. You've got millennials who are growing up in essentially third world conditions in their own countries. Mm -hmm. that, that's no different to, and that echoes back to the late 70s, early 80s, where people looking across between the left-wing uh, politics of, of uh, the USSR versus the right-wing politics of America, it didn't matter which, which 
which one you found yourself in, you, you kind of started to look across and say, look, capitalism's broken, it's not working. And then we had 20 years of growth through the 80s and 90s, uh, resulting in everybody in the uh, turn of the century going, right, well, Soviet um, communism and the left-wing stuff doesn't work. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, we find ourselves back it where they're. Turns out capitalism doesn't work either. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so, and, but and, I think the, the other thing to that, that, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because it just turns out that industrial civilization is unstable, huh. right? The socialists couldn't figure out how to work it. Neither could the capitalists. So, so I can't really tell from this LinkedIn post whether, you know, he's making a social commentary uh, uh, around where we're swinging back and forward, whether he's trying to say that we're standing on a cliff and we're falling over. You have to remember... I think he's talking about got, money supply fundamentally. We have, a, we have a social demographic in the uh, US and UK and, and across the Western world from the baby boom generation that is sitting at the top of their, uh, in the 60s and 70s, born just after the Second World War, who ripped through... Um, both the social and economic fabric of all of their societies. So it doesn't matter if you're looking at the invention of the teenager when they were teenagers uh -huh. or the 69 and summer of love when they were at uh, university, college. They then went into the workplace and then started to reduce taxes while forcing everybody back. They're now pensioners and wondering how they as the biggest voting bloc, are going to get paid in their old age. Yeah. And he's writing a story that says, as a baby boomer, which is what he is, how am I going to be looked after in my old age? Just as that, that <laughs> generation of baby boomers have always felt like as they've gone through social fabric. But they are the biggest voting bloc. Yeah. So all the way through, the politicians have had to pander to that baby boom generation. I think it's an interesting place to leave it. We're out of time, guys. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week uh, comes from TechCrunch and Dreesen Horowitz launching a free crypto startup school. Love that. And Dreesen are playing 4D chess. They really are. Um, Coindesk Bitrex will release frozen crypto to former users in sanctioned regimes. Ooh. Um, Bitcoinist Square Cash App doubles its Bitcoin-generated revenues. Square Cash is absolutely killing it, and it's the story of, of USA fintech, in my humble opinion. Their uh, revenue and profits are phenomenal. I think they generated something like $307 million in revenue, $128 million in profit. Only $2 million of that was Bitcoin profit, but people come for the crypto, stay for the peer-to-peer. Yeah, -peer. Uh, something to be learned from what they're doing. Wow. Uh, and they don't have nearly the same ire coming from uh, from global governments about uh, social networks or um, stable coins. Interesting. Um, story from the block. Um, Stripe CEO Patrick Conson is still very skeptical about cryptocurrencies use in the near term. Um, no surprises there. Um, and it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Pete McCormack. Um, and uh, get your uh, sensors ready if you're listening to this with the kids in the car or anything like that. Do do hit mute for a few seconds. Pete McCormack says, "Die is too complicated for normal people to give a fuck." Any thoughts? If you don't have enough ether to wager on die, you probably don't care how it works. I I would agree. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a good experiment, and that's what we see the crypto world providing for us is a move fast, break things, um, uh, attitude. Those actors are now being given licenses and they're coming into the regulated space. Yeah, as they are which coming, is as frankly they, a disaster. As they're coming in and they are having to take licenses, they wash up uh, uh, in our place uh, over in Lab 577 where they find themselves needing technology that will actually allow them to uh, uh, to 
fulfill that license or those regulatory requirements. How about that? Um, regulators going to regulate, uh, quote Warren G. Um, so that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you all, this podcast is, of course, brought to you by 11FS. We're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and change the fabric of financial services indeed. Um, where can people find out more about you, Richard? Uh, they can come find us on lab577.io, um, on Twitter and Rick Crook. Um, and for most of our clients, they're coming towards us to do primary issuance and secondary trading. So any of your listeners out there looking at digital assets, wanting to do primary issuance, secondary trading, do come and give us a call. Start at lab577.io. Beautiful. And Vinay? Um, Materium.com. Uh, if you want to see the crazy sound of what we're doing, materium.com slash WSA, where you can see us issuing uh, digital identities to physical things in the form of William Shatner's Star Trek figurine collection. God. This just, yes. Vinay, thank you. <laughs> it had thank, to be done. <laughs> I'm so glad you're a thing and you exist. <laughs> you're talking to the guy that bought CryptoKitty. Yeah. <laughs> hey, CryptoKitties are cool. And if you want to buy some Shatner merchandise, we will have it on the market for you very soon. Shatner shilling right here. A uh, big thank you, as always, to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Producers Laura, Petrit, Hannah, Olivia, and, of course, Alex, our superstar editor. Thank you for listening. We will, of course, have more Blockchain Insider next week.